You know, as we've joined together in worship during this time, as we've sung songs to God, as we've been reminded of God's faithfulness, right now we turn to God's word to grow in not only knowledge of who God is, but to be equipped through the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus in more powerful ways. If you've missed any of these sermons, I invite you to get caught up after today's service by going to YouTube, looking up Bel Air Church and starting with the sermon called God is looking for leaders. Now we're in the fifth week of this sermon series. You don't necessarily have to have experienced the first four to understand uh, everything today, each of these stands alone. But just to give us a quick little overview of what's happened so far leading up to this day so that we can grow in our leadership is this, that Nehemiah has been called by God to leave the comforts of the palace of Persia where he's been the cupbearer to the king and to travel to Jerusalem and to look and see the devastation that has occurred over many centuries and to plan and to invite the people of God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we find ourselves right now in this fifth week in Nehemiah chapter four, and we see great opposition rises up in the midst of this great opportunity to do the work of God. You know, in my own life, I've experienced that it seems like whenever there's an opportunity, there's always, there's always opposition. And sometimes that opposition can come up from just the circumstance. Uh, the opposition can rise up from other people. Opposition can rise up from within, maybe my relationships or within the community or within an organization. Uh, but sometimes opposition rises up in my own, my own heart and my own mind. And as I go through this, what a great reminder of what it also says in the New Testament that, you know, we struggle and we war against not, not flesh and blood. That's not our real opposition. But rather we struggle against and we fight against the spirits and the principalities. There is a spiritual warfare that is going on behind the scenes that we can't see whenever we engage in God's work. That's the key. You see, they're doing God's work. God has called them to do this task. And we are called to join God and work every day and everywhere alongside everyone as we follow Jesus. And because of that, God's enemy wants to oppose us. And God's enemy can use a variety of tactics. And so as we get into this topic, the perseverance of a leader, it's a reminder that the sermon series isn't just for people who the world looks at you and says you're a leader, but really for every single person on the planet. If you have a relationship with somebody else, if you ever interact with somebody else, you have influence over their thoughts and actions. And because of that, Ken Blanchard, a great writer on leadership says, whenever you influence somebody else's thoughts or actions, you engage in leadership. That could be your body language. That could be something you post on social media. That could be something you say or don't say. We all have influence. And this sermon series is about equipping you to see that you have influence and in those places of influence to grow and be not just a good or a great, but a godly leader. And with that, like I said, there's opposition. So how do we have the perseverance to navigate that opposition, whether it rises up out there or within or in here in faithful ways? that help us to grow in the ways that God longs for us. Now there's three kind of broad um, points that I wanna make as we go through chapter four. The first is this, that godly leaders recognize the anatomy of opposition. 
Number two, the godly leaders recognize the effects of opposition. And number three, godly leaders recognize the answer to opposition. All right, so the first one, godly leaders recognize the anatomy, the structure, the makeup, the details of opposition. So grab your Bibles. Let's open them up to Nehemiah chapter four. And we see right from the beginning, verse one, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he mocked the Jews. If you have your Bibles out, uh, a printed Bible, why don't you underline that word mocked? If you're digital, why don't you highlight that? You know, one of the, the key things that godly leaders can recognize that exists in opposition is whenever mockery rises up. I've really shifted in my thinking of this. You know, when I was young, whenever I was mocked, I would shrink back and I wouldn't focus on the mockery. I would, I would translate that into what I thought that said about me. And I began to believe, oh, you know, I can't do this. And this is foolish and this is stupid, you know, and I would just get so wrapped up so quickly, I would bend over. I would crumble under the weight of mockery. And now I realize that the greater the mockery, the greater the lie. And it seems like whenever somebody resorts to the tactic of mockery, they don't have any truth to stand on. It's their last resort. And so Nehemiah, as he writes here, he rec recognizes that what Sanballat is saying, out of his anger, out of his enragement, at the end of the day, it's, it's simply mockery. And as you faithfully desire to follow Jesus, as you want to be a person of integrity in your workplace, and you find yourself uh, doing some things that have integrity, that are about telling the truth, that are above reproach, that are honest, I guarantee you, you're going to have people that will begin to mock you. Because sometimes integrity isn't how you get ahead, according to the world. Sometimes being honest isn't what the world says you do to succeed and people will mock you. They'll call you names. They'll maybe belittle you. And yet godly leaders, they recognize mockery when they see it. Furthermore, there's organized resistance. Now, you'll see this all throughout this chapter, but why don't you uh, go ahead down to verse 7. Remember Sanballat, who I just read about? He was engaging in mockery. Well, he goes on. Verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that we were repairing the walls of Jerusalem and all of it was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were, they were all angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. You will find, as a follower of Christ, that opposition rises up, not just from individuals, but sometimes those individuals will band together. And these are the critical moments. Do you allow the, the opposition to be louder than the voice in your heart and your mind that you believe is from God? In a moment, we're going to see the right answer to opposition but it seems like 
the louder and louder that opposition grows. And especially as we live in a world with social media, people can uh, magnify these things and grow these things and it can just become a snowball, it can become overwhelming. It can be so tempting to just, just quit right before you get any work done. But again, godly leaders, they recognize the anatomy of opposition. And as things get organized, as the mockery increases and spreads and multiplies through multiple people, you just, you recognize it for what it is. The third is this, rumors begin to spread. Now, this is easy to overlook. Take a look as you uh, go down further uh, in this passage. In verse 12, it says, When the Jews who lived near them came, they said to us ten times, Now, let's break this sentence down. When the Jews who live near them, who are the them in this sentence? Well, if you read the whole chapter, you see that these are the the Jewish people that live the closest to all the enemies of God. The ones who have now banded together, the ones who are now plotting together to thwart what God wants to do through God's people. And so you have people who geographically live close enough to those people, those enemies of God, that they begin to hear the anger. They begin to hear the outrage. They begin to hear the lies so much that they begin to believe it. And because they've fallen for these lies, hook, line, and sinker, they believe it is truth. And because they believe it in truth, they're filled with fear. They're filled with so many emotions. And it says that they now go to the community of God that is longing to build the wall and they can't stop talking about these rumors. In fact, as it says here, they said to us 10 times from all the places where they live, they will come up against us. You know, I love the moment, a crazy moment to love in scripture perhaps, but uh, it reminds us that sometimes it's, it's those of us within who are well-intentioned and well-meaning can, can fall for lives all the time. And the passage in scripture where Jesus uh, is interacting with Peter and Peter, Simon Peter, you know, uh, doesn't understand that Jesus ultimately, after living this beautiful life, has to go to the cross to lay down his life. And so that through that, all people on earth would be forgiven as they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so Peter has a particular view of what he believes Jesus as the Messiah is supposed to do. And dying on the cross doesn't fit into that framework. And he argues with Jesus. He says, surely no, Jesus, no. And Jesus responds and he says this, Get behind me, Satan. He knows that in that moment, Peter isn't his opposition, but that Peter has fallen for a lie that comes from the heart of the enemy of God himself. And Jesus speaks not to Peter. He speaks to the lie that Peter is is uttering, that Jesus doesn't have to die, that there's another way, that it can just be some other thing. And here we have perhaps an example in Peter's life and in here where we, we can begin to fall close to the enemy 
we can begin to stop listening to God's promises. We can stop spending time in God's word. And all of a sudden, we can get led astray. And so these are Jewish people who are now part of the opposition. It's not just those people out there. It's, it's people who are well-intentioned, who have fallen for the lie. And see, godly leaders, they recognize the, the anatomy of opposition. It can come from all places. It can come from within. It can come from without. It can be circumstantial. But ultimately, this isn't about warring against people. It's not about putting people into categories. It's ultimately about saying, God, how are you leading us? What are you calling us to do? And as we have that clear vision given to us from God, that as there is mockery and organized resistance and rumor that comes in, it's an opportunity to see it for what it is. But now those, those opposition from out and from within, they have an effect on God's people. And you see, godly leaders, they, they recognize the effects of opposition. This isn't just some case study that you can look at on a piece of paper and, and be emotionally detached from. Opposition, it affects you. And as you have influence over people's lives, you need to know how it affects and how it affects you, but also how it affects the people around you. There's four things I see right here. The first is this, that there is exhaustion from the opposition. In verse 10, but Judah said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Look, they're, they're building the wall. They've gotten to the, the halfway point. You can read in verse six. So we rebuilt the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. There was momentum. Again, I talked about this last week. For 90 years, the walls around Jerusalem had laid in rubble and in waste, absolutely destroyed. Two different attempts over 90 years had failed to rebuild the wall for the first time in 90 years. Now the third try, it's a charm. They're finally, they're finally getting to work. They're finally in a strategic way, actually rebuilding the wall. They had a mind to do it. They were of one heart, one accord, one mind. As we talked about last week, it was strategic in how they were organized. They shared the work. They had specific responsibility. They worked smartly. And now they're at the halfway point. And it's often, in my own experience, the halfway point that's the hardest and most critical point to be. In some ways, if you look at it as a race, the halfway point is the furthest away from the starting line. And it's the furthest away from the finish line when you consider those two points. It's often the halfway point that exhaustion begins to set in, especially when there's opposition. Now, maybe some of you are trying to influence a relationship that's been uh, broken and you're putting in the work and you're asking for forgiveness, you're extending forgiveness, you're doing the work of reconciliation and you're definitely farther than where you began, but you're still a long way off from where you know a healthy relationship will be. Sometimes in those middle moments, in that period of time right in the middle, that's where things can just, they get exhausting another conversation, another round of trying to understand one another. Or maybe you're trying to, 
to write something. You find yourself at the halfway point. You're trying to create something. You're at the halfway point. You know, you know the, the excitement of the new project has worn off, but it still feels like the, the finish line is so far off in the future. Maybe you're leading some organizational change and you're, you know, now the opposition has set in. Often exhaustion comes. And godly leaders, they recognize it in themselves and they recognize it in the people around them. Nehemiah recognized it when the people said the strength of the burden bearers is failing. But it's not just exhaustion, it's also frustration. Often it flows out of exhaustion. Frustration comes out. Listen to how it says in here. And there is too much rubbish. There's too much. Now here's what's so crazy. They've just completed half of the wall. At this point in rebuilding the wall, there's less rubbish compared to at any point in all the days before it. You see, they started with rubbish and they used not only new material, but also old existing material to rebuild and repair the wall. And so every minute, every hour, every day that went by as they repaired the wall, as they restored the wall, the rubbish got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And yet, because now they're exhausted, frustration sets in and they say there's too much rubbish. They're not speaking with a clear mind. In the very beginning, they could have said there's too much rubbish because that's as much rubbish as there's been for 90 years. But now there's the least amount of rubbish there's been in 90 years. But because exhaustion set in from the opposition, they had frustration. But it's not just frustration. They now have defeatism. Take a look at this. They say, because of that, still this is verse 10, we are unable to work on the wall. Forget it, we're done, we just can't do it, there's too much, we're tired, we're defeated. And godly leaders acknowledge, know, they see the effects of opposition. The people can get to a place and say, this is not gonna happen. It'll never happen. I look back in the last two years and in the midst of a global pandemic, we had to make some very, very strategic decisions. One of those decisions actually has had a dramatic impact on this moment. In the midst of the global uh, pandemic, we, we faced opposition. Opposition that came from a variety of factors that ultimately led us to make some strategic decisions that now enables us to gather together in this moment digitally from the comfort of your own home. Now, in the midst of that, there were some people who were, of course, exhausted from all the work, who were frustrated that we couldn't do ministry how we were used to doing ministry. And some people actually said, in a defeatist sort of way, this is the end of our church. If we can't do things the way we've always done them, and people understandably, we're exhausted and frustrated and defeated. And so some of us in leadership, we recognized it for what it was, that it was simply the effects of opposition. People were, were getting exhausted. They were getting frustrated. No wonder they were having a defeatist attitude. And rather than getting frazzled by it, we recognized it for what it was. And we continued to say, God, give us wisdom, give us guidance. We, we came alongside people to encourage them in their exhaustion, to encourage them in their frustration, to, to remind them of what God had called us to. 
that our focus is on Jesus, even though the forms might shift in the midst of defeatism, that God was doing a great thing. And here we are on the other side of two years, reaching over 10,000 people a week. We've just completed a vision campaign, $14 million given towards what God is doing in and through our church to the ends of the earth. Remarkable things are happening. There was many moments of exhaustion and frustration of defeatism where people said, you'll never be able to raise that much money. You'll never be able to do this. And it was from some people within our church family. And that's, that's understandable. And without getting so frustrated and upset at where that opposition rose up, again, we have an opportunity to just acknowledge it for what it is, to listen to it, to take it in, but to bring it before the Lord, the most powerful, clear voice of all, and ask God, how would you have us navigate this? Okay, it's not just exhaustion, not just frustration, not just defeatism, but it's also fear. We see this in this section as it goes a little bit later on. Uh, it says, um, they, will, they will come up against us. Our enemies will defeat us. In verse 12, it's not just that we won't be able to build the wall, but actually something worse. There is this great fear that we'll be killed. So not only is the work that you're doing, Nehemiah, those opponents said, not gonna work, it's going to fail. It's actually going to result in our destruction. And sometimes opposition can, can go from bad to worse, can go from this isn't going to work to this is wrong and this is bad. And as opposition rises up, it gains an intensity. And as we recognize the effects that it can have on people, opposition can, can grow, it can spread, it can, it can stop something beautiful and glorious and good in its tracks. We see this around the globe, we see this throughout history where beautiful movements and good movements and great work is just, it's stopped in its tracks. But the key is, is what do we do? Once we've recognized the anatomy of opposition, once we've recognized the, the effects of opposition around us and in us, how do we answer opposition? Well, it's remarkable to see what Nehemiah did. The first is this, he and the people of God, they rested in God. That's the first thing they did. They didn't respond, they didn't attack, they didn't just work harder, they prayed. Take a look at this. Again, open those Bibles if you've closed them. Again, in Nehemiah chapter four, I'm gonna read from uh, verse one through verse five. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, the stone wall that they were building, any fox going up on it would break it down. This is, this is the opposition. This is the mockery. This is the beginning of the, the organized resistance. This is the beginning of rumor. How do they respond? They first, they rest in God. Listen to this. This is uh, verse four. They pray. Hear, O God, for we are despised, turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have hurled insults 
in the face of the builders, they prayed. They said, God, we want to deal with them, but would you, would you deal with them? And that's the first thing that we need to do in answering opposition is to rest in God. To say, God, it is not my responsibility to counterattack. It's not my responsibility to get back. It's not my responsibility to play their game on their rules. It's not for me to turn back and mock. It's not for me to organize a counter resistance. It's not for me to spread counter rumors. It's for me to rest in God and say, God, because you're calling us to do your work and this is opposition to your work, this is your enemy. So God, would you deal with them in a way that is a lot better than how we would deal with them? Step two, you respect the opposition. Now, here's what's fascinating. They don't just pray and then pretend that there's no opposition. They pray to God and they respect the opposition. Take a look. This is a little farther. I know we're jumping all over the place, but really amazing to see this. In verse nine, it says, so we prayed to our God and... We set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see, on one hand, if you take things only into your own hands, in this case, them only setting a guard day and night, you begin to believe that you alone are the only resource that you have. But if on the other end of the spectrum, if you only pray to God and you don't do any work yourself, you can be in some ways a little naive to the fact that God has given you agency to have a sound mind and to make decisions. You know, some people say, you know, should I just pray and wait or should I just go ahead and act? I believe it's a little bit of both. That we pray as if it depends all on God and we act knowing that God has given us agency to move forward. In this case, they pray to God and they set guards to watch the the wall day and night. On one hand, we have to rest in God, but we also have to respect our opposition. We have to acknowledge it. We have to set up boundaries in our own lives. I, I see so frequently, and I've experienced it in my own life, that when we lack emotional boundaries, when we don't put up guards to our own heart and our own mind, we can allow the opposition to wreck us to discourage us, to exhaust us and frustrate us and cause us to be defeated, cause us to fear. And some of the greatest leaders and the most godly leaders are those who are called to have those clear boundaries respecting the opposition. Again, remember I said in the beginning that we war not against flesh and blood, that we're not fighting against people, but against a spiritual force. And I love how the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians talks about every single day putting on the armor of God. Now, this is not literal metal armor, but this is a spiritual practice that you can put on the truths, the protection, the righteousness, the peace, all that God gives us to put on our lives so that when the day of evil comes, Paul says, not if the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes, when there's opposition from the enemy, you will be able to stand firm. 
I encourage you to go online to, to even search on the internet after this. Uh, what are and what is the armor of God? And you can do some study on your own. There's some great resources that are out there. But as we pray to God, as we rest in God, but respect the opposition, know that this is spiritual warfare. And we're called in respecting the opposition to, to do our part, to put on the armor of God and to understand where those attacks come from. Third is this, to reinforce the weakest parts. Now in any organization, in any life, in any relationship, in any family, in any school, there's, there's, there's weaknesses. It's part of the human condition. And so on a personal level, I know, I know my weaknesses and I'm asking God to reveal to me more and more the, the weaknesses in my life and to guard against them, to, to put things into place to help shore up those weaknesses in a family or in a relationship or in an organization. You might be able to identify some weaknesses and to, to not overlook those, but to know that the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest crack in the wall can cause the floodwaters to get through. The tiniest crack in a boat hole can cause a Titanic-sized boat to sink. And so what does it look like for them? Very specifically, it says in verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. You see, Nehemiah recognizes the point of weakness. In the lowest part of the walls where enemies, opposition can come in, in the open places of the wall where enemies and opposition can come in, that's where the reinforcements were placed. And godly leaders, they, they recognize that answering opposition is to reinforce the weakest parts in your own life, in your family, and in the organization. Number four, it's all about reassuring the people. You see this again and again in Nehemiah chapter four. He says this, I love in verse 14. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In reassuring the people, Nehemiah didn't just say, you can do it. He didn't just say, you've got the strength. He doesn't say, you know, they're just weaklings. He says, remember your God. Your God is on your side. Your God has called you to this. Your God is with you. So stand firm. You see, godly leaders reassure people with eternal truths, not just external attributes. Like, you know what? You're so good at this. You got it. Or you know what, you've, you've done this so many times before, this is gonna be easy for you. They appeal to something that transcends all of it and they say, God has called you to this. And because God has called you to this work, he's gonna equip you. Step into it with humility that it's God who gives you the power, God who gives you the strength, God who gives you all that you ever need to accomplish this. But step into it with courage that God is for you, not against you. And then finally, in here we see Nehemiah refusing to give up. There's some remarkable language in here. 
In verse 21, so he labored at the work and half of them held the spears from break of dawn until the stars came out. It's a long day. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night inside Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me ever took off our clothes. We never changed them. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. This work that God had called Nehemiah to was nonstop. It was around the clock for them. And it required some people to work by repairing and rebuilding the walls. And it required some to be at watch and on guard with spears in their hands. They didn't stop at the work that God had called them to. Somehow they were able to work in such a way from dawn until night without changing their clothes. It is an intense period of work. And what's so remarkable when we zoom out and look at this whole sermon series and we remind ourselves that the only way that we're going to do the work that God has called us to is if first we rest in God and who God says God is, we are. You see, the reason why they were able to work so hard and with such intensity is because it came out of a place of rest. Had they not been people who rested in God, had they not been people who spent time in prayer, had they not been people who were nourished and, and delighted in God, they would never be able to get to this point in time where it required the fullness of themselves nearly 24-7. And sometimes there are seasons in work you know, in, in a family where there's been something that happens and it requires such urgency and such a commitment of time to, to care for a kid who's going through an addiction, to reconcile, you know, deceit among a spouse, to get through an intensity of a, a deadline, to, to fix something that's been broken, whatever it might be, sometimes there is little seasons of intensity of work. And in those intensities, it is so tempting to just give up. But when you recognize the anatomy of opposition, when you recognize the effects of opposition, when you, when you answer opposition with these things, resting in God, respecting the opposition, reinforcing weaknesses, reassuring yourself and the people, then finally you can refuse to give up because you're strengthened with a the best way to describe it is it's a supernatural strength. It's a strength that doesn't come naturally. It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. And so friends, that's how we can have perseverance. It's not our own strength. It's resting in God. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is this, that we, we can lay aside all these things, all the things that hold us back, that cling so close, and we run the race with endurance and perseverance, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, disregarded the shame of the cross and went to it out of joy for you and for me. I think about the life of Jesus and the opposition that he experienced coming to a crescendo on the cross. Jesus persevered because he saw it for what it was, he saw its effect. 
but he answered, resting in God, trusting in God and following God every step of the way. That's what we're called to. And thankfully, we don't have to do it on our own. God gives us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave dwells in you and me to give us that supernatural perseverance. So as we pray, as we continue on in worship, may God give us that strength. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love and I thank you that you say in Scripture time and time again that you were for us, not against us. I love how in Romans 8 it says that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. May that give us the ability to persevere in the midst of the greatest oppositions that we might face in life. May we follow your leading now and forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen.